Montana has become known for fabulous writers and books that have helped define the American West. One of the interesting aspects of Montana literary history is the mix of writers who grew up in Montana and then left and continued to write about it, such as Ivan Doig, Norman McLean, and people who moved to Montana and developed their writing style living in this wonderful place, like Tom McGuane or Deborah Magpie Erling. And then there are those who never left, such as Dorothy Johnson and James Welch. No matter how these various writers managed to become enamored with Montana, many of the books that have come out of this state have become classics. And many have led to classic films as well, such as Shane, A River Runs Through It, and more recently, The Power of the Dog. I'm Charles Finn, author of Wild Delicate Seconds and On a Benediction of Wind. And we at Breakfast in Montana are here to explore what it is about Montana that inspires so many great books and so many wonderful writers. For the next hour or so, we're going to talk to a Montana writer about one of their books. And I'm Russell Rowland, author of 56 Counties, Cold Country, and a few other books. We're also going to talk to these authors about a writer that has influenced their work. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. All of your good times and good friends won't keep you from dying. in Montana. We're going to talk about a fabulous memoir by someone who's a friend of both Charles and me, Mary Jane Nealon, called Beautiful Unbroken, One Nurse's Life, which was published 2011. And this is the second time I've read it. And man, I just love her writing. Yeah, it's the second time I've read it too. I read it when it first came out, and I was really impressed. But this this second time, I'm just I'm really quite blown away. It's it's fantastic. It really is. I mean, not only is she she's a poet, mm. uh, so not only is her language just fabulous, but she does such a deep dive into her own motives and her own the things she learns from all some really powerful and devastating experiences that she writes about. Yeah. She certainly doesn't um, shy away from the difficult and she's lived quite an extraordinary life, but what's struck me the most, and I want to ask her a little bit about this is just that I mean, memoirs are so difficult to write. Well, you probably know this better, better than I do. And it's not just a list of I did this and this happened to me and blah, blah, blah. She really gets into what it meant for her emotionally and for her development, you know, just as a, you know, growing older and wiser and what those experiences amounted to and how they, they accumulated, you know, through the book and, and led her to be the person that she is right now. Yep. It's so well done. It's not, it's a, like you say, the language is wonderful, but it's just a very interesting look at things that happen to to 
any one of us all the time. We lose our parents, we have you know this small tragedy or that larger one. And she writes them so well, which is the, the tricky part, of course. I've been walking down this long stretch of gravel, humming a tune, my feet are keeping the time. I've been walking down the road less traveled, traveling down the line. When I'm troubled by a bad situation... We were talking about how much tragedy you've experienced and how you do such an incredible job in this book of exploring real in a really honest way how that impacted you both positively and negatively and so i'm curious i guess i'm i don't even really even know what to ask about that but i i admire so much how you uh i mean i had completely forgotten about after all you went through with your brother and all these aids patients then your boyfriend the accident i mean it's just like one thing after another I guess I, I guess the question would be how much do you think that um, your writing helped you to cope with all that and how did you manage to write about it so in a, such a raw and um, transformative way? I mean, I think of two things with that question. Um, one is, you know, I think I always worry about appropriation of other stories and that I was really pulled to that conversation in your episode 33 with mm. Shan. Uh, because I think it's really important to witness without taking, taking, you know, so that that process itself, I think is a meditation on whatever that experience was. And then um, there's a thing in therapy, and I don't know if I'll get this correctly but there's a book called the worst has already happened or something like that and that part of how we survive anything that we see that's difficult for us or that we experience i mean first of all i was blessed to not be living the thing mm. i was seeing the thing or caretaking for the person um that telling that story with reverence tells your brain this is now just part of your history, right? So it's a way to move forward in joy and to leave that behind. Um, the other thing I've been thinking about lately is in the poetry world now, there's this thing of saying, um, like a giving a trigger warning. I mean, I would have to give a trigger warning for like everything I say. And and I forget, I don't think of it. So I was in this workshop last week and I we each read four poems. I didn't give a trigger warning. It touched on everything, like, you know, shotgun, domestic violence, all that. And then this next woman who was lovely said, I need to warn you that there's some obscenity in this first poem. And like this other poem deals with, you know, divorce or something. And I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> but to me, I think of poetry as a vehicle for mm. exploding yeah. all your emotion. If you come to poetry and you're not geared up to be shaken in your spirit, then I don't really understand why you would come to poetry. So I, I'm trying to like figure that out in my life, like how I can be respectful in the creation of the work without withholding 
I also think, and not to get super political, but in watching this Maui tragedy, people keep pulling back from the story, uh, saying, well, well, it's too graphic to describe this. I think it's just like school shootings. Mm. We should be seeing them yes. with parents' permission. We should really understand what this urban fire experience looked like, because if we don't take it in on a visceral level, we're not going to be moved to address climate change. We're not going to be moved to address um shootings in the school and like so on a much smaller scale when I'm writing a poem like if I do a reading and I see three men crying I'm like oh yes like I it's succeeded because I want you to feel what I think you should feel about homelessness or about illness or abandonment um anyway I'm sorry I just will keep talking no I I completely I've been saying that for couple of years about the school shootings i mean when you think back to vietnam and the when they finally started showing some of the horrible uh, yeah it, i agree there people aren't gonna comprehend well, you, quote, you quote um Lamy watch where you say what is poetry that does not save nations or people nations or people yeah yeah so i mean is that what poetry is for you are you trying to save the world are you trying to make it a better place oh god i'm not trying to save the world but i am trying to you know in my core i'm probably a socialist you know i really don't understand the the removal of people from suffering of our fellow man uh and I feel like this is one mode I can deliver the things I've seen. And I know I haven't seen all there is of suffering. Uh, but there's so many people that I think live completely separate from it. And maybe they have like a heartache in their family, but they never worry about paying their bills. They never worry about shelter. They have like so many homes. They have to VRBO them. And I'm just like, excuse me, could could you just come here for a minute and look at this guy's feet? Mm. You know, I really have a hard time with it. So uh, if you look in history, like Milos, what Milos did was object to the war, fight in the underground. But the bigger thing I think he did was he memorialized what the war in Poland looked like. So that if you really know his work, you understand the kind of suffering. I don't know if you know his poem, um, On the Day the World Ends. Uh, so, you know, I might cry a little bit. But, you know, he, all these people were trying to write about the Holocaust. And it was just too big. And he really felt that at that moment, something about the world ended. Because it was a catastrophe beyond comprehension, right? A genocide that he had not experienced in his lifetime. And so he just says, like, on the day the world ends, a bee circles a flower, a fisherman flows out, throws out a silvery net. You know, he describes this beautiful idyllic moment in the country. And then he says, there will be no other end of the world. There will be no other end of the world. He repeats it twice. That poem always destroys me because 
as these things happen, as these genocides, I mean, the stuff in Haiti, the stuff in Niger, like the world is like in such chaos. And yet there are these like beautiful little moments that somebody has like, and the world is burning, right? So, well, you so actually... I feel like every poem, you don't know what your poem is gonna do. Your poem might do nothing. You're, maybe nobody picks up your book. But the poetry's there. I feel like it has a job. And then what that job does, who will know, right? I've been walking down this long stretch of gravel, humming a tune. My feet are keeping the time. I've been walking down the road less traveled, traveling down the line. When I'm troubled by a bad situation, everything's wrong or the world is cloudy and gray. Things are better if I change my location, walking my blues away. No need to be in a hurry. Troubles dissolve when you take your time. Shake off your cares and your worries. Sooner than later, you're feeling. I also love how raw she is about her own failings, especially when she writes about how how much regret she had about not being there for her brother during the final year of his life, and you know how she managed to translate that into doing things for others you know that job that she went on to uh working with aids patients i mean i love the moment where she describes where she was working in this place where the where the aids epidemic basically really exploded and most of the people she worked with were talking about you know you don't want to get too close to these guys <laughs> and she decided made a conscious decision to go in the other direction and I just I just thought that was incredible especially considering that it, it was you know she's very upfront about it being sort of a compensation for what happened with her with Johnny mm -hmm. yeah and like you say she talks very openly about her regrets and failings and failures but at the same time she allows herself some grace in that. yeah and she's not like beating herself up over right but she's like you know she does seem to come to terms with it that we're all we're human and we're gonna fail mm -hmm. it, it's kind of nice to hear her say that troubles is all when you take your time shake off your cares and your worries sooner than later you're feeling just fine you know that you can bet your bottom dollar where i'll be something that i really that um i loved about your book is that you are very gentle with yourself about um the times in your life where you felt the need to escape like so the when you were doing the aids work and you spent a lot of time just like <laughs> going yeah. out and, yeah so um i just i guess i'm curious about how you uh managed to be comfortable with that part of your your life where you were 
looking for ways. I mean, it, the way you incorporate that into the story is an important part of the book, I think. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny after my, after that book came out, both my parents had passed and this family friend sent me a note about it and said, your parents would have been so ashamed. Oh God. <laughs> right. I mean, I kind oh of loved it. It was so ballsy. She was like 80 years old or something. And I replied back to her and I said, no, actually they would have been really proud mm. uh, because my parents totally accepted um, our adult flaws, you know, and my father was in recovery. So he certainly had things he had to account for. Um, and we, I think men, we all individually probably felt like we failed my brother, even though probably none of us did, you know, we all had those things, those fallibilities. I will tell you in human being training, it's the first time in my life because, um, there was a very odd assault I had when I was young that I hadn't written about. And, um, it really impacted my life. And in this book, I wrote about it and I had Jeremy Smith read it. I don't know if you know him. He's a nonfiction writer here, a good friend. And then this other guy, Michael Klein, who's a poet, nonfiction writer on the East Coast. And I said to them, I need to know if this should be in there. Mm. And they both were like, oh, my God, are you kidding me? It's the core of the book. Mm. You know, Like how our bodies can be compromised and we can still stay compassionate and empathic towards others. And is it because of that or is it in spite of that? And so that's kind of the struggle. But up until then, I'd be like, no, I don't think there's anything I wouldn't say mm. because uh, I, I'm trying to be vulnerable and fallible. And if somebody doesn't like my writing, like they, well, then they don't have to read it. They don't have to buy the book, but I don't want to not go there. Yeah. Um, so that's been a really, that's been a really um, interesting challenge. And Jeremy said to me a couple days ago, you know, I was thinking about that book. That book is really about like who owns our bodies mm. and how do you decide to own your body? So I don't know if I'll ever finish it now because like now there's just more and more things I want to think about and say about, but um but now it wasn't hard because I don't really have shame about it. Maybe not shame, but as you were writing Beautiful and Broken, you were imagining, I would expect, that your parents would read it and, of course, your sister would read it. Was there any tension, struggle, with like maybe I shouldn't include that? Or were there things that you purposely left out saying, I'm, that's too much family, too intimate. I think I'll, I'll not write that part. Any self-editing? I don't think so. I would say I didn't, I don't know my sister as well as I know many other people in this world. And I'm still learning about my sister and I'm excited about that. And we have had a couple of things come up this year where she's like, no, that's not what happened at all. No, that's not who that was at all. And she's like four and a half years older than me. Mm. So I'm like, oh, really? And I said, well, you know, memory, we all have our own memories. And she said, yes, that's true, but mine are correct. Oh, God. So I think even if I wrote something that she felt was untrue, I think she would accept it as my truth. Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
You know, Finn, I think the other part of that is that we're all big readers, mm. right? Like we, as a family, you know, my father, uh, I may have said this somewhere before, but like literally a couple of weeks before he died, he said something, He, I said something, he goes, eh, and that's what Molly Bloom said on the toilet in, you know, Ulysses, or he quoted something from Graham Greene, or, you know, it was just we really loved the written word and we loved the the effort, the impulse to tell a story. Mm. So um, I don't think I withheld from my sister, but I think my sister is a thinly drawn character in my memoir. And part of that is just because our our closeness has developed later in life and has continued to get stronger. Um, but no, nothing... My parents used to come to all my readings and they came to this reading in the East Village where I, the title was because a part of all of us uh, like chains. And, you know, my mother was sitting there with like one of those little sweaters with like the ducks that join on the chain or whatever it was. And she says out loud in like all these leather gay guys sitting near us, she goes, chains? And I said, yes, chains, mom, you know, and then they just laughed like, so yeah, it's a blessing. Cause I hear a lot of people talk about that fear of family. Well, Jen. I think you, you have to decide in, in any, I mean, you, ha you, you have no way of knowing who's going to be offended by what. So, I mean, being careful about that kind of stuff is, really pointless in the end but it, it reminds me what you said about the memories reminds me of um you know who will william finnegan is mm -mm. new yorker writer who wrote this book called Bar barbarian days about his surfing oh. life yeah um i heard him talk one time and he was telling a story about how he was like meticulously careful about he ran every part of this book by the other people involved and you know said is there anything that you think i should correct or whatever and he there was one part in the book where he was um talking about going back with his girlfriend to visit her dying father and there were several passages about this period in their life and he sent it to her and after they'd had several conversations about it she finally said to him, there's one thing about this part that, that you're, that you've gotten wrong. And he says, what's that? And he goes, she said, you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, what? She said, you didn't go with me. And he, and of course he knew he was, that he was there, but that's the way she remembered it. Isn't that fascinating? That is wild. <laughs> And, you know, I will say I, my friend Anne, who I was a traveling nurse with, she did say to me, don't say anything my mother can't read. But uh, like I didn't need her story to be uh, exposed, whatever. I'm not that there was anything to expose, but in her mind, she was worried about her portrayal. Yeah, 
it's when it's not a memoir that uh glorifies herself <laughs> uh, no. it's more of an exploration of you know how do we how do we deal with our own weaknesses and shortcomings but also you know find ways to make our better parts show right well which is what you know any good memoir does it's not just a navel gazing exercise it yeah it, it takes a personal experience and course of a lifetime and then you know shows the universal in it how we're all in one way or another you know, struggle with these same things so i had a couple of examples of beautiful language yeah i pulled a few too phrases spicy sadness my grandfather my grandmother sat on the stoop and gathered all the tragedies in her lap repeating mm -hmm. them as stories that's just so great i tried to imagine my fear was what made me special oh and this line about her how she was such a fearful kid and her brother was like completely the opposite he was brave and just kind of lived life at the fullest she says almost everything i was afraid of would eventually happen to him mm. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just so many little nuggets like that that just take your breath away yeah in fact i had pulled out that the the spicy oh um, did you oh too yeah yeah uh-huh um i'm trying to find let me yeah this is this um some of her opening paragraphs are just wonderful mm. this is from the chapter unforgivable regret began as a little rock chip in the windshield that on a cold morning cracked and grew larger and larger until i couldn't see the road anymore and then it goes on and on but her, her analogies and her metaphors similes are just her, one of her strong points yeah absolutely So speaking of language, can you, do you have your book there? I don't because I packed all my books. <laughs> I packed a fish to feed all hunger, but I packed oh, everything. Oh, okay. I guess I'm going to have to read this for you then. So this is from I Come Home to My Mother. And I think it's just such a fabulous example of how your, your poetic uh, sensibility shows in this nonfiction narrative. My mother was a pink bud fallen on the grass in the orchard. My mother was the green light in beach glass and the ornate reliquary on the front of the book of Psalms. She was etched in wrinkles from years in the sun and delicate in her frame. If she was a musical note, she would be the plaintive A-flat. All the little arguments of my youth. My dress was too long, my hair too wild. All the criticisms disappeared not just eased but vanished my mother and i entered a new rhythm i arrived on friday night she cooked something i liked on saturday we did errands my father rested after a week of doing most of the chores on his own since the stairs were getting more difficult for my mother sometimes when we did errands she waited in the car but more often we just moved very slowly together from one point to the next sometimes i held her soft soft hand when we were younger we used to laugh about the polish women in the neighborhood who walked hand in hand now i took hers and said let's be polish 
It's just beautiful stuff, Mary Jane. It's just Thank beautiful. you. Yeah. That was a real, uh, you know, I know I've mentioned Shan a few times on this, but I have had great conversations with him about forgiveness. Mm. And I love that he talked about that again in his episode with you because it is such a blessing. I mean, you have time with your mother now, right? It's such a blessing to have that time when you're, child rebellion is past and you can just forgive their mistakes. They can forgive your mistakes. And it's such a great blessing to have that. Everybody doesn't have it, you know, and it was, it was, those were good days. Yeah. Well, we were, we were singing your praises earlier when Russell and I were talking and, and that was one of the things is that, um, these are experiences you've had many that none of us thankfully have, have had. Um, but you know, deaths of parents and things like that, that we all end up or most of us at least go through, which are so common and so incredibly difficult to write about. Um, not just, or at least to write about them well. And so that was one of the things that we found was that you take these very ordinary events and um, express them so poetically that it it creates this universal understanding. It's like, yeah, I I I get it. I I was there too once. So it's one of the um, the very strong points of your of your writing. I I had this amazing experience where I was taking care of this man who'd been shot five times in Jersey city and his sons didn't call an ambulance. They're like these big, strong Latino men. So they run him to the hospital, which was the absolute worst thing to do. Mm. And I might've written about this in the book. I don't think I did though, but while I was taking care of him and he did not survive for all sorts of reasons, but I, after he passed, uh, his sons were waiting outside and I was trying to clean him up so they could come in and see him. And uh, all I could think about was snorkeling in Hawaii. Like about five years earlier, I had lived in Hawaii or seven years earlier. And like really viscerally feel the, the idea of snorkeling. And I tried to write about that for so long. And then at one point I sat down with a friend of mine who's from London and he's a rabbinical scholar. And uh, I told him the story and I said, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to write about it. You know, um, it was like the poem entered the world and then I had to figure out if I could translate it. And uh, so in like 2009 or 2010, I can't find my original copy, but I get this envelope in the mail from London and it's a copy of the American Journal of Nursing. And he'd written the poem and it was a hundred times better than I could have done. Mm. And it would, so I think there's a, like the stories exist and maybe you'll tell them Finn, maybe you'll tell it Russ, but, or maybe I'll tell it, but that's the thing with like Maui and the school shootings. Like right now I don't feel capable of writing about the climate. I don't feel capable of writing about school shootings, but but those stories have to get packaged for us so that 
So those of us that are not living those experiences will understand the cost, like we understand the cost of losing a parent. That that corny song from my childhood, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. I mm-hmm. think like so many times people will be like, well, do you really think we should have to pay for the homeless? I'll be like, I don't know, he's, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. Like, yes. She's good at these lists. Like, there's another part on page 24 where she's talking about moving. She says, when I moved away, I left my brother. I also left 94 years of family. I left my grandfather and the Pennsylvania Railroad. I left the history of the way my grandfather died, tipped over in the front yard eating an orange. I left my first communion dress, little bride dress for Jesus in May under the elm. I left our doorbell, our black telephone. I left wall sconces and dancing in the kitchen. I left my mother doing the hornpipe, kicking up her heels, flinging the dish towel over her hair. I left all the baths I took with my brother and how we would make soap bubbles rise from the washcloth. But I also left his tumor. I left his suffering with the backdrop of the Colgate Palmolive factory. I left the oil My brother said he wanted me to go. I thought if I repeated that to myself, two more days and then to Texas first up. That's just incredible. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the poet in her, right? And that's yeah. why poets so often make very good um, nonfiction writers. Mm-hmm. They, it's the the, it's not just the detail because everyone tells you, oh, include details and paint the scene, but it's a matter of choosing the details and which ones you're going to use and which ones you're going to leave out. And right. she just was, you know, exquisite job of that. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about when you said you uh, you weren't sure you could be happy without the counterweight of suffering. You still feel that way? Um, you know, Finn, something changed really dramatically for me during COVID in that um, I cannot kill a thing. I can't kill... Like I was reading on my Kindle last night and this little tiny bug kept landing on the page. Before COVID, I would have just like squished it, you know? So I I don't. I feel like I spent a lot of my life, I'm going to be 68 this year, really feeling that suffering was the way to understand like our soul and our spirit and that it was necessary work. 
But being in the company of like little tiny creatures, like I wild delicate seconds with them, Mm. you know, I think, oh, you know, joy is pretty good too. And um, there's a way to immerse yourself in joy. So I feel like that's more of what I'm trying to do in my, in these later years now that I've stopped working and the suffering things that are still trying to come out in stories and poems, like I'm hoping I'll be able to balance them. It's a little bit harder because even in uh, my poetry manuscript, I kind of moved towards like the dogs and this injured fawn that we kind of took care of in the neighborhood last year and things like that. And I think people are like, I mean, Sandra Alcasser, who I adore, actually said, like, you can't just write about the dogs. And I'm like, they're not, it's not, it's harder, right? It's easier to write about something dramatically um, challenging than it is to write about, like, the piece of, you're really good at it, Finn. But I think for, I'm used to coming up against some tension that I don't feel now because I feel really blissful. Mm. Yeah, one of the things that struck me throughout the book is you kept going back to language and going back to poetry as a a buffer, or I don't want to say quite a savior, but you even said that your parents at some point finally understood how language balanced your sadness and your joy between being a nurse. And it, can you talk a little bit about that that need to keep going back to poetry and and language? How that how that helped you? Yeah, I think, you know, poetry's origin, right, is song, right? And I think my poetry voice really has nothing to do with what I what I'm thinking. So I had been trying to write about this woman that I took care of in the 1980s for years and years, like I don't know, 37 years, whatever, who had tried to kill herself by using a shotgun and moving it with her toe. And what she did was she just kind of blew off her frontal lobe and the top of her skull, trigger warning. And mm-hmm. um, and she was so beautiful and she was young and she had a handful of kids and this very scary, mean looking farmer husband who I don't know anything about. Maybe he was lovely, but for some reason that was her answer. So she didn't die, but she was lobotomized. And so she was suddenly totally pliable to go home with him. She survived because she took off so much of her skull that her brain could swell without killing her. Normally with a gunshot, the brain swells and kills you. So I remember I had to like help her get dressed. I was like snapping her little cowboy shirt that she had on to send her off to the middle of nowhere with this man. And, um, And I just felt, I I was haunted, just haunted by her. But no matter how hard I tried intellectually to like start to tell that story, it always felt wrong. And then about two months ago, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning and I just said, shotgun wound. And I think of bees and Robert Frost. And then I sat down and I wrote the poem. And like, maybe I'll do little edits to it, but it feels like, I finally said the thing I needed to say. So I think there's like whatever that spirit is that's the poet 
just has a voice that has to find mm. its juxtaposition or its thing and then and then I'm really not I don't feel like I'm present when I'm writing poems like that. I just feel like it's coming out and then I can read it and be like, "Oh, that's what I thought." Mm. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I've been walking down this long stretch of gravel Humming a tune, my feet are keeping the time I've been walking down the road less traveled Traveling down the line do you, do you keep a journal or through this those years? Did you keep journals? Because I was just so impressed with the, the particulars and the details. You would say, oh, my mother was wearing a pink dress with, with lavender flowers. And, I was like, how on earth can she, I can't remember a single damn thing like that. Yeah, you know, I don't keep a journal, although I do record things a lot on my phone um, as I have memories. But when I, I don't know what the thing is in school, but I was not a good student because I couldn't memorize. But I've always remembered what I've seen. So, uh, and then I could attach like a story to that. So even when I was in nursing school, everybody would be like taking notes and underlining things and colored pens and everything. And I would just be kind of sitting there. But then the day of the exam, I'd be like, oh yeah, Mrs. Curran, she was wearing a red sweater that day. And I remember she said this thing about the uterus, whatever it was. And then I would get it right. So it's, I feel like it's, a gift, but I wish I had kept um, journals, Finn. I really do because there's, I'm sure there's much more I've forgotten than I remember. You, well, why don't you tell us about Sandra? It's, I thought it was interesting that you, uh, she was one of the first people you met when you moved there. Yeah. Um, when I was moving out here, a number of poets that know her from New York um, said, you should get in touch with Sandra Alcosser. And then a, a mutual friend gave me her phone number. And I wasn't here very long, maybe a couple of months. And I called her and she was just back from San Diego where she teaches. And she said, oh, yes, well, let's meet at Bernice's Bakery. Mm. And we went there and I'm sure you guys have had this experience with other writers. Suddenly you're like, oh, we're family. Like we think the same way and we understand the same things and we care about poetry. And so we sat outside of Bernice's for maybe an hour and a half when we went to leave. I went to say, I love you. Mm. And then I stopped myself. But then instead of like just letting it go, it was like fatal attraction. I go, Sandra, I just almost felt, I felt compelled to say, I love you. Like then it was like worse because, and um, she was like, oh, I totally understand, you know? And then that moment I was like, this is a friend for the rest of my life. And uh, we worked on poetry together every time she was home from San Diego, sometimes every week. And the thing that I think she has done in my life and in this book, even though I don't, I don't think it was necessarily her intent, is she took the Western male trope for me and gave me a female way to be in Montana. And I think you can be a male and be here in the female way. Ooh. I don't think you have to be part of like that old ethic of the Western man 
But it, it was like she was saying, it was a way for me to stop feeling like an outsider, to mm. really understand, like, it's important to be a woman in the West, even if I'm not from the West, um, because this incredible place is here for my existence and my interpretation, too. And it doesn't have to be a drunken male poet that I idolize not that I'm judging drunken male poets but uh, <laughs> you know I feel like there's just that idea of what the mountain man is like that frankly I haven't really met very many of them um, so she really gave me away and ironically in the book when I, I said to her one day you just seem so close to this woman what happened to her how come you've never talked about her and she said oh I, I just made her up Oh, uh, so that's not common in poetry. People think of poetry as truth. And so uh, I thought, I mean, obviously it was her, right? It was like another way to explore herself. Mm -hmm. um, but that also was an important thing for me to feel as a writer that everything doesn't have to be autobiographical. Sometimes you can give the feeling a setting in a story. I mean, I wouldn't do it in a memoir, but I, I just, I've learned a lot from her. She's been a real companion in poetry. I, I think poets, well, I, I, in all my readings, I say, oh, it's one of the great things is we just get to be liars because we, we don't stick to the truth whatsoever. I mean, whatever sparked a poem, then maybe that sparked it, but we don't, it doesn't matter what happened. We just, um, we take it from there. And those the characters that I created in the book, I have to say, in my latest one, no, I, I have these are just they're not based on anyone. I just created characters so I could say the things I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. So I'm not surprised that Sandra did that too. Right. Because the truth is the tr the emotional content of the poem for me. Right. However, you can make me understand as a reader what that content and is even if it's not narrative, even if it's like an emotional journey. Yeah. If I, I as a reader, I can enter, I don't need to know your autobiography to enter it, right? So there's so, the, that, that, that idea, I lie to tell a bigger truth. And I don't know if that's Mary Oliver or not, but it's... Oh, I like that, yeah. So other than that, how how would you say she's affected your your writing? So when we first started working together, I would bring a first draft, really messy. And she would bring maybe two versions of the same poem and say, I'm struggling with this. Tell me which version you like better. And I'd be looking and looking and looking and reading and reading. And finally, I'd say, I'm sorry, Sandra, I can't see what's different. And she'd say, Oh, this one in the next to last line, I have a comma and end. And I was like, oh, my God, who does this? Um, do you? I I just I have so much. But do you know, I've started revising so much more heavily because of her, my relationship with her. Uh, she makes me feel like I want to be more careful and meticulous and. Uh, that I want to try to, um, I took a class with Rick Barrett recently. I don't know if you know him or if you've ever studied with him, but 
he said the first day, just live in the glory that you've written this brilliant thing. Cause every poet I think feels that way the first day, like, wow. And then he said the next day, read it like an editor, mm-hmm. then read it like a stranger, then read it. Like he had like a list of ways to go back into it. And now she'll bring like a true first draft, which is still pretty extraordinary. But that's been part of like, she's, I think, loosened her willingness of when she'll show me something in the same way that I feel like I'm a lot more careful now that I don't bring her something carelessly put together. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. So can you tell us what you liked about uh, or like about Sandra's work? Yeah, I'm fascinated by her, talk about language. You know, I'll think my vocabulary is okay. And then I'll read like, I don't know. Let me um, see if I could find like a really quick example. Oh, do you have her book there? I have, I have her book here. Oh, good. Okay. This is like, I'll just do like three or four couplets in the middle of this poem called the man in the window. Okay. I return from work to watch him. At dusk, when he pulls the shade, I am waiting. With his smooth hand, he tosses black-seamed stockings from the window, a white lace slip. They inflate like silk pigeons, flap and twist past Western Union, past sparrows in their vapor lamps, then dive back to Chambers Street where they cling to the pale linen shoulders of strangers." Her entire book is like that, where you just are in this cinematic thing of like beautiful, tight sounds and images. And that was like um, when Sandra was young, I'm pretty sure that's from she used to work in Needle Park with um, people with substance use issues and. So I think that that was from that time. And I know that landscape and there's really nothing all that beautiful about that landscape. But I feel like it's almost like a hopper painting in that moment. So I can read a poem of hers like 10 times and feel things are concise, but they're not blunt. They're not Hemingway, you know, they're um, but they're not flowery and yet you get something beautiful and delicate out of it if that makes any sense but yeah that that does uh i found in in her work and yours there's a, often a, a sense of of danger or you know the world is not all all rosy and all beautiful there was a, a line from her poem a night on goat haunt i guess where it says the glass-like fungus is poison you cannot name will look delicious mm. that sounded like like something that you could have written and then that her poem the disposition of hands where that the, the boy throws himself off the roof and crashes through the roof of a car and the last line of one of the stanzas is where the woman was, was a driver her, her hair is snapping like an orange flag mm. but right after that she says we save what we can mostly small things and then lists these little th- which was it reminded me so much of what you know things in beautiful and broken where you were there's this tragedy you're witnessing you're part of and you were noticing the small beautiful things that still exist simultaneously 
So I, I, I saw, I can understand why you would have a, um, uh, a relationship and like, like Sanders poetry, because there's, they're very similar. Have you crafted your poetry somewhat after hers? Do you think? No, I don't think so. I mean, we joke because she wrote uh, for a number of years, these sonnets, this sonnet sequence. And after like the fifth year, I would say, is this a sonnet? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> it was all different explorations of the sonnet. Um, I just bought Robert Haas's little book on form. I want to explore form more myself. But historically, I don't, I haven't held my feet to that fire. But that's the thing I was saying, too, about the Montana male and the female is Sandra has seen like I'll be honest with you. When I first started going to Lee Metcalf Refuge, which I go like four times a week, if I would see a heron grab a gopher and eat the gopher and like really see it, I was like tortured, like much more than any human being I ever took care of. And I'm like, and people would be like, oh, gophers. Yeah, get some in your house. You'll be happy. We shoot the gophers, you know? And I'd be like, oh my God, it's little brain just popped out. Like, but Sandra has seen all of those things and seen them in humanity too. And when she writes about the, like she can make something so beautiful uh, that there's one poem she has where a hawk has gone through her window and it left like the outline of its mm. wings. And um, so I feel like I have a lot to learn from her about how to merge like minute, my sense of peace in nature with those moments in nature where you just kind of, uh, I mean, I saw a little fawn hit by a car one day going to work. I cried the entire day mm. at work. At the image of the mother doe just standing there and uh, the fawn was trying to get up and it were these twins that lived on our block. I'm like a dead end block. And so I'd be in leadership team meeting and somebody would say, what can you do with the schedule? I'd be like, I don't know. I saw a fawn. Like I literally couldn't speak. I couldn't function. And then I came home and they were both here. And oh. my friend's like, oh yeah, I think it was just like shocked. Oh. So to me, that's like a thing Sandra understands completely at her core. Like mm. what's beautiful and what's violent goes hand in hand sometimes. Mm. And I'm, that's all still new to me after 22 years. I'm still mm. trying to navigate that. Human violence, I'm much more, I sort of get it, you know. Right. Do you want to read anything else from her? So this is A Fish to Feed All Hunger. On the porch like night peelings, bags of red hackles, the fisherman is dressing capes of moose mane around him. In his vice, he wraps the waist of a minnow with chenille. We wade downstream, I am barefoot. The fisherman stands, thigh deep, signing insects. Perhaps today in this blizzard of cottonwood, it is the caddis that rises after a year in mud from larva to phoenix in four seconds. The fisherman ties an imitator of hare's mask and mallard breast. He washes his hands in anisette, then casts back a false cast, watch the insect's legs break the water. I line the creel with hay and mint and lay in six pale trout. 
There is a pink line that runs the length of a rainbow's belly more delicate than an inner ear. It makes the whole basket quiver. The fisherman does not ask why I come. I have neither rod nor permit, but I see him watch me afternoons as I bend to brush down my rooster-colored hair. He understands a fish to feed all hunger, and the lure is the same. So I love that poem, and when I read that poem, I think of Wordsworth, Behold her single in the field, yon solitary highland lass. Like, to me, that's like all of echo poetry in that poem. Desire and labor and nourishment. Beautiful. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I know yeah, when I mean, I'm in New Jersey, I might need another dose. Not yeah. related to the podcast. Good, good luck with your move. Thank you. And Montana's going to miss you. Yeah. Well, I'm going to miss Montana. But yeah. I cried in my dentist chair. And it, the water was like collecting my ears. And finally he goes, am I hurting you? And I'm like, no, I'm just going to miss you. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much, Mary Jane. This was fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. I've loved it. Bye. I'm adrift in this world, but wherever I roam, I will still love that girl. So I'm bound for the mountains and a land far away. And there Thanks, everyone, for listening to Breakfast in Montana. I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Isle of Books in Bozeman, and also the Isle of Books and Books in Butte, Montana, and also the bookstore in Dillon, Montana. And I would also like to thank Aaron Parrott for being host of this show for most of the last five years. And I'd like to thank Charles Finn for hosting the last couple of episodes. This is actually going to be the last episode of Breakfast in Montana. And I'd like to thank everyone who supported the show. And I hope you've enjoyed our discussion with all these Montana authors. I would like to extend a special thanks to all the authors who participated and agreed to be interviewed for Breakfast in Montana. This episode featured the music of John Lowell, and you can find John's music at johnlowell.com. Thank you.